Robert Robinson was 17 years old when he first encountered the gospel message in all of its weightiness. He was 20 when he finally accepted the truth and trusted in Christ alone for salvation from his sin. He was 22 when he penned the words, Come thou fount of every blessing and prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as we just sang. Even though he knew that God alone, Christ alone, was his hope and his salvation, he also knew his own heart well enough to ask the Lord to seal it, lest he wander away from the only source of salvation and hope that he could ever have. And sadly, wander away he did. After many years of pastoring, Robert walked away from the Lord, and in the process, he lost his joy. And it was in that condition that by God's providence, he found himself in a stagecoach alone with one other passenger, a woman who wouldn't stop trying to point him to Christ. And then she had the audacity, not knowing who he was, to quote to him a hymn that had been a great comfort to her, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. This did not sit well with Robert. He desperately tried to change the conversation over and over, but she wouldn't let up. And then she just sat there humming the hymn over and over. Until he had to admit to her that the poor, unhappy man sitting in the stagecoach with her was the very author of that hymn, and that he would give anything to know the joy again that he had felt in those days. And that was the catalyst that God used to bring Robert Robinson back to himself, to the only source of hope, salvation, and enduring joy. I have to imagine that in a congregation our size, there's likely a Robert Robinson sitting somewhere here today. Maybe you started strong with the Lord. You had great joy, but somewhere along the way, you walked away. And if you were honest this morning, you'd say I, that you feel the loss of Christ's companionship. Maybe you've just come back to church after many years away. Maybe you've physically been here all along, but you checked out spiritually and emotionally years, maybe even decades ago. And if so, I hope that you will take comfort from Robert's story because God has not changed. God has not abandoned you. You can, in fact, be restored to the joy and the hope and the salvation you once knew. But, in order to do so, you will need to accept one great truth. Oga. O-G-A. Oga. Now, that's the sermon today, at least as short and brief as I can make it. Oga. Only God alone. And perhaps it seems a little hokey, corny, to say 
Oga, like something a caveman might be saying, Oga, Oga. But I hope that it's helpful for you because that one word, those three letters, those two syllables, summarize the most basic truth of the entire universe. Only God alone, the most practical of all truths. It is the one thing we can never afford to forget. And in the moments when we are most prone to do so, when we're overwhelmed by an endless array of challenges, confusion, despair, persecution, temptation, doubt, and so forth, we don't always have the mental and emotional capacity to remember big chunks of vital truth. Sometimes we simply need one or two syllables that encapsulate what we most desperately need because it's all that we have the energy for. And so I offer to you Oga, only God alone, because that is the theme of Psalm 62. Perhaps you noticed it in the song set this morning. My hope, it comes from you alone. Only a holy God, come and behold him, the one and the only. You alone are worthy of our praise forever. You alone are seated on the throne of heaven. In Christ alone my hope is found. In Christ alone who took on flesh. God alone, only God alone. It wasn't accidental that all those things went together. In fact, if you go home today and you just keep hearing the word only, 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 alone, alone, alone. Great. Something worked. I'm glad. We need that. And perhaps some of you are thinking it seems a little redundant, maybe grammatically incorrect to say only God alone. Like, well, he's only God, he's God alone. Isn't that saying the same thing? Yep, it is. It's redundant. And that redundancy is absolutely 100% intentional. And if it drives you crazy, you're welcome. It'll help drive home the point today. Because we read and we sing and we speak about God alone. But we so often live as though he is one of many options. And if we're honest, he's not even often the first or the best option practically in our lives. So only God alone is intended to jar us a bit, to double down on the exclusivity of God, the utter unmatched uniqueness of all that he is because there is no one like him. There is no one, no thing that can be for us what he can be and do. Our God is a category of one. There are no rivals, no competitors, no other options. He is not the first or the best or the most this or that. He simply is he alone, and what and who he is is more than enough for everything we face, and that is what gets us through life. So, Oga, only God alone. As we turn to look at the theme in Psalm 62 itself, please have your Bibles open and also your bulletins, because there you'll find a series of rubrics, lenses, activities, through which to look at Psalm 62. Now I feel a little risky this morning doing this. I want to try something a little bit different. And you might reject me for it. We'll see. It'll be okay. Because I could just tell you what Psalm 62 has to say. I could sit up here for the next 20 minutes or so and talk to you or talk at you. But I would rather show you. 
I want to engage those of us who are auditory learners and those of us who are visual learners and those of us who are tactile learners all at the same time. And I found each of these activities in the bulletin helpful to me in digesting Psalm 62. So my hope is that walking through them together will be fruitful for you as well. And you have my full permission to tell me later if that hope bore fruit or just simply died on the vine. It's a risk. So Bible open, bulletin open, pen or pencil in hand. Let's dine in or dig in. You can pick your metaphor to the scriptures. Psalm 62. It is a story put to song. And like any good story, there is a cast of characters. There is a plot. There is a crisis and there's a message to be found. And the chart in your sermon notes in the upper left-hand corner allows us to look at the characters and to plot out their place in each of the three stanzas in the psalm. And let's pause there. You may have noticed that the psalm is divided into three equal parts of four verses each with the term selah separating the sections between each one. And Pastor Ken has pointed out in recent weeks that nobody actually knows what the original Hebrew word selah means. That's why it's not translated in our text. We don't know what it means. But many believe that it's a notation of some kind to say stop, pause, meditate, consider. Don't just bust through this song as you sing, but Take a moment to reflect. Maybe that's why we have some musical interludes between verses and choruses to allow our minds and our hearts to digest what we've just heard. So David is not just throwing a bunch of thoughts onto paper, putting a tune to it, and then uploading it to Spotify to see how it's received and if people like it. No. He is carefully crafting a message with all the artistry of a master poet. He intends for us to take each of the three movements of the psalm, consider them individually, and then see how they flow together. Because it's not only the words of Scripture that are inspired by God and profitable to us, but also the shape and the order and the flow of individual paragraphs and chapters and books and psalms. Now we can do so first by noticing the cast. Who is involved in Psalm 62? Quite simply, we have four cast members that you can list out there. We have God, we have David, then we have enemies of David, and we have the people of Israel. God, David, enemies, and then the audience of the psalm, the people of Israel. In the first stanza, and all we're going to do here is just put a check mark. David addresses the people of Israel. And God is in view from the very beginning. David has a lot to say about who God is to him. So there's David, there's the people, there's God. And then in verse 3, we encounter the setting of this psalm. David is under attack. Now perhaps this was a physical attack. One of many such incidents in David's life. Where he was opposed by other people. Perhaps, as some have suggested, David may be referring to the spiritual battle with his own sinful heart and the temptation and guilt and shame that come along with that. 
Regardless, there's some form of opposition to David. So in the first stanza, all of the characters are in play. They're all there. And then we move to the second stanza, and what do we find? Was with the first stanza, God and David are in view immediately. He addresses his audience directly. But David's enemies don't warrant a single word of direct treatment. As David rehearses his dealing with those who opposed him for the spiritual benefit of God's people, what he doesn't say may be just as important as what he does say, and what he doesn't say about his opponents is anything at all. In the third stanza, that trend continues. Mankind is certainly in view in verse 9, but again, there's no direct mention of David's enemies. The people of Israel are clearly addressed. God is featured prominently in the final verses, but his enemies in the second and third stanzas, they're not there. And like them, when we come to the third stanza, someone else fades from view. David. Aside from one personal pronoun, David doesn't warrant a mention either. What does this have to do with us? Like David, we face opposition. We get attacked, targeted, oppressed, bullied, and more. By other people, by circumstances, by doubt, by sin, by guilt, by shame. And Psalm 62 is a tremendous weapon, a valuable resource for all of those battles. If we assume the most straightforward understanding of David's song, that this is a personal attack from other people, when we face such times, we ask ourselves, who dominates our thoughts? Who dominates our conversations about the matter? Is it ourselves? Our enemies? Other people? God. We're going to come back to that later in the sermon. Your second activity, off to the right of that chart, who is David addressing? Who is he talking to in each verse? So this second lens overlaps with the chart we've just completed. We'll move through it pretty quickly and then consider why it's relevant. Verses 1 and 2, David is talking about the people, but it's God who is in view. My soul finds rest in God alone. He seems to be talking to the people. He's setting the tone for the psalm. And whether or not this matches the timeline of David's actual lived experience in the conflict, in the psalm, he starts before he ever says a word about his enemies or about himself, really, he's talking about who God is. Yes, in relation to himself, but God is the focus immediately. But then in verse 3, now he turns and he talks directly to the enemies. He has something to say to them. And then in verse 4, he turns to the people and he talks to them about the enemies, almost as though he's going, you people, you are this. Hey, listen, listen, everybody. Look at who they are. Let me tell you what they really are and what they're really about. Okay, so he's talked to God for two verses. He talks to the enemies. He talks to the people around him. And then in the second stanza, he does something very important. Verses five through seven, he turns and he talks to himself. He commands his own soul what to do, what to take note of. And then in verse 8, he turns, he talks to the people again. In the third stanza, he continues to address the people in verses 9 and 10. But in the end, 
He's talking to God again in 11 and 12. Why is this helpful for us to chart out? These two activities combined. Because when David was facing oppression, his focus was barely on his enemies. They did not dominate his field of vision. Only two of 12 verses feature them directly. And in only one of 12 does he actually talk to them. His focus was only slightly more on himself. And even when he was talking to himself or about himself, the majority of that focus was actually reminding him himself of who God is to him. Only one verse finds David noting his own condition, his own weakness. That's a vital truth. We're going to come back to it. But he spends eight verses talking about God's strength and dependability. So that he spends far more space telling the people about God than he does telling them about his situation, his enemies, or his own weakness. We'll come back to that. What about us? Do we do the same? The third activity, which can be very helpful in certain portions of Scripture and very simple and easy, is just to trace the commands. You take a passage of Scripture and you just underline or highlight or circle the commands and see how that flows through the text. We're told what to do and what not to do. What were the original hearers and we by extension being told in this regard? Here also the divide in the stanzas is stark. It's noteworthy. Because in the first stanza, there's not a single command. David doesn't have anything to say about what anybody, God, himself, other people, enemies, should do or not do. In the second stanza, we find only positive commands. Do this. Find rest, O my soul. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him. And then in the third stanza, we get only negative commands. Do not trust in. Do not take pride in. Do not set your heart on. In this particular psalm, David doesn't tell God what to do once. He doesn't ask God to do anything. But he does tell himself what to do. He does tell the people of Israel, by extension, what to do and what not to do. And every positive command is based on one truth, the character of God. Find rest, O my soul, because God is certain things. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your hearts to him because he is certain things. And in summary, he is Only God alone and only God alone can do and be certain things for you. And even the negative commands, what he tells the people not to do, basically don't trust in anything other than only God alone to get you through difficulty, conflict, opposition, and more. So now we come to the indicatives. What is the fourth activity? As always in Scripture, The imperatives are based on the indicatives. That is, we are told what to do and what not to do on the basis of what is, so that all God's commands are welded to reality. They are not the capricious wishes of a deity looking to meddle in your affairs. They are instead the instructions and warnings of the only one who made it all, knows how it all works, and knows the fatal nature of going against reality. So we look at what is in the psalm. So first of all, what is about the enemies? What is true about them? Because often we see our enemies as powerful and overwhelming. 
But David takes just a little time looking at them. But he has some profound things to say. Who are they? What is true of them? They are liars. They are deceivers. They take advantage of the weak. They woo with words of affirmation and blessing to your face, but cut you down in their hearts and and minds and behind your back. They are pretenders. They are willful hypocrites. They cannot be trusted except to tear down the weak for their own gain. They are cowards and thieves. Oh, they're a real threat. And yet we must see them for what they really are. There's no substance to them. What about David himself? He is weak. The David who was a mighty warrior, who slayed wild beasts and led armies into battle, who vanquished his foes right and left, is reeling. It's a wonder he hasn't yet collapsed and just given up. David makes no declaration of his own strength in this psalm. He does not boast about himself. Or if he were living in our day and age, we might say he doesn't turn to social media for an endless stream of self-help aphorisms. You've got this, David. We believe in you, David. You're stronger than you know, David. No, that doesn't work with David. He knows he's weak. What about us? Our opposition in its various forms, it's real. And we are weak. So what can we do? Now, I'm pausing here before we get into the indicatives of who God is. We're going to come back to that. But how do we respond when we face opposition? Well, there are really three options. The first option is implied. Just give up. David's a wall already leaning toward the ground. He's a fence that would wobble at the little touch of a toddler's finger. So just give up. Just fall down already. Be done with it. Stop fighting. Surrender. Don't waste another moment. Oh, that's tempting so often, isn't it? Just give up. Don't keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's pointless. It's fruitless. Just bow out and give up. The second option is the broadest option, and that is that we can look for rescue and deliverance elsewhere. That's represented in verses 9 and 10. We can trust in man. We can trust in money. We can trust in possessions, to which we could add hundreds of other options. Trust in your own strength, physical prowess, beauty, intelligence, power, position, prestige, fame, craftiness, scheming, education, and on and on and on and on. Many of those things are good, but they're not worthy of your trust. And David gives us an example in mankind. When we're shaky, on the brink of giving up, at the end of ourselves, overwhelmed to the point of breaking, we need something solid, weighty, dependable, something with real substance, someone permanent, eternal, unfailing. And when we look for that, we often turn and we look to other people as though they can give us what we need. But only God can be that for us. Consider, for example, the self-help appoint or the uh, self-appointed self-help gurus that overpopulate social media today. How easy it is for some of us to assume that because those influencers are famous, they've got thousands upon thousands, perhaps millions of followers. Therefore, they must know what to do. Man, we fall for that. We turn to them. We hang on their every word because maybe most people can't help me, but they can. Okay, we know lowborn men are but a breath in David's words in the psalm. 
We feel that. Most of us would consider ourselves low-born, common people. Our earthly lives, they feel so short. And most of us will be forgotten within a few generations of our lives, maybe sooner. Such has been the case, after all, for 99.9% of the people that ever lived. The low-born are but a breath. In the scale of history, they are here today, gone tomorrow. The Bible says we're like grass of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. That's us. Ah, but the high-born... Ah, the famous, the powerful, the wielders of influence. They are something else. They have weight. They can deliver. Those who will be remembered for millennia. They, we can turn to them. They can do something for us. And here David gives us a really helpful corrective image. He envisions a set of scales. And on the one side are the lowborn. And on the other side are the highborn. And our expectation is that what is going to happen is really clear. But the lowborn over here, the highborn over here, and the scales do this. Because, wow, the highborn, they have so much weight to them. They're so significant. We know that we're only a breath, weightless. So, of course, it'll go like this. But what David says is, actually, the scales don't budge. The lowborn, the highborn, Lowborn are but a breath. We see that. There's no substance, no weightiness to the lowborn ultimately. The trick with the highborn is that they only look like their substance. They're actually just as weighty as the lowborn. There's no hope in mankind. In fact, actually, let's take this a step further, David says. They're so weightless that if you take the highborn off this side of the scale and put them on the other side of the scale with the lowborn, so you have all of mankind, the scales don't move. All of mankind is weightless. So where can we find the weight, the substance that we need? Well, we could look to wealth and belongings. Whether or not you get your income through honest means, your riches increase in the psalm, or through dishonest means, extortion, stolen goods, etc., well, these two cannot bear the weight of your hope. They actually, on the scale, are completely and utterly weightless as well. Your retirement account is weightless. All the money you've ever made, all the possessions you have, they're actually weightless. One of the most tempting idols of our day is to live for the high-paying job. It's not a bad thing if you've got that. Praise God. Thank Him for that. Use it well. But we think that if I just get the high-paying job, that gives me security, safety, and provision for the rest of my life. That becomes the thing so easily on which I put all my hope. This will satisfy me. This will sustain me. I will have everything I need. Don't buy that lie. And you can decide later if I intended that as a pun. Don't buy that lie. Though your riches increase, not a bad thing. Don't set your heart on them. Money, too, is like dust that has no weight on the scale. So what about the third option? Because so far, we don't have an option. Everything is meaningless and pointless and weightless. The only option we actually have is only God alone. We sang about it. We've touched on it in the text. 
But now the onus is on me to prove to you that the core theme of Psalm 62 is only God alone. And here we have to turn to the original Hebrew. And let me take a step back from the sermon. As soon as a pastor starts to say something like that, with few exceptions, we need to say something like this. I've not studied Hebrew. I am not an expert in Hebrew. I don't really know what's going on in the original text. But I am in conversation through books with those who do know what they're talking about. So this is not Leo speaking. This is the people who know what they're talking about. They tell us that the Hebrew word translated alone in our text, often translated only, in the original Hebrew is actually the first word in five of the first eight verses. So that if you were reading in the original Hebrew, you would be assaulted by only, 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 only. You would not be able to escape that what this psalm is trying to get across to you is there is something unique about God alone, only he. So a literal reading of Psalm 62 in the English might say something like this, only in God can my soul find rest. Only God is my rock and my salvation. Only can you find rest, O my soul, in God. Only he is my rock and my salvation. Only he is the source of my salvation and honor. So that we would be hearing only, 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 only. Only God is what? Only God alone is our rest, our salvation, our rock, our fortress, our source of hope, our source of honor, our refuge. Is that all? Just that? He is everything. He is not the best or most preferable option among many rivals, only God alone, so that there is no one and no thing that can be any of these things for us except him. Okay, David, that's a massive claim to make. Do you have any evidence? Do you have a rational basis? Or is this just some kind of religious gobbledygook? In verse 11 and 12, David gives us his evidence. The rational basis for the claim of only God alone is God's permanent, unwavering character. This is where we come back to the indicative. God is. He is strong and he is loving permanently, eternally. He was those things before we were ever on this planet, before we were ever even in existence. He was these things and he will be them forever. Praise God that he is strong. Only God alone. Because he is strong, uniquely strong. He is mighty to save. None can oppose him. But what if he were strong and not loving? That's most of the gods that mankind has made up throughout all of human history. Strong but not loving. He might be like many of the Greek and Roman and Hindu gods. He would be a terror to mankind. He wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good news. You would be in a race to try to placate this God quicker than anybody else can. Because if other people gain his favor before you do, he's going to be against you. That's not good news. So praise God that he is loving. That the one who is strong is also ever loving, steadfast, gracious, merciful. But what if he were loving and not strong? He might want to save us. 
He might want to bless us. He might feel bad for us when we're going through things. Oh, I'm so sorry. But be utterly incapable of doing anything about it. Praise God that he is both strong and loving, both capable of rescuing us and desiring to do so, so that when we pour out our hearts to him and trust in him at all times, he is all of the things that David claims him to be. He is only God alone. So there are two questions here. How do we respond? If these lenses have helped you to see Psalm 62 more clearly, they should help you to answer these final two questions. The first is a reflection. How do we tend to respond to opposition, especially wrongful attacks? Do we respond the way David models for us? Well, I can't answer for you. Maybe I could answer for some of you, but I wouldn't do that on a Sunday morning and call you out in front of everybody. But there's one person I can call out in front of everyone. Me. When I face these things, I don't often respond the way that David does. My response tends to look very different because for David, his enemies and self faded from view quickly. God and pointing others to God in the midst of his circumstances, those took center stage. But if there were a transcript of my responses that went across the screen up here, first of all, I'd probably leave the stage quickly and hope I got out before any of you caught me to say, you thought that, you said that, you did that. I don't know who you're talking about. That would be a lie, but I would be trying to escape quickly. Because what you would find all too often in my life is a lot of rehearsing my own hurts, criticizing the opposition, licking my wounds, feeling sorry for myself, recruiting others to take my side in the conflict. That's my response all too quickly. Now, praise God, in time, through the counsel of others, including some of you here, through the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry and reflection on his word, I eventually make it around to being more like David, focusing on God, pointing others to him. Praise God, more and more often I respond more and more quickly the way David did, but all oh, those selfish tendencies are still far too easy to give into. They are far too ensnaring to get out of quickly. But maybe that's just me. What about you? When you face a crisis, who dominates your thoughts? Those enemies? When you go to social media to talk about it, who's the subject of your posts? The people that are attacking you? Yourself? Or God? Makes all the difference. What options do we have in response? Like David, when we face opposition, conflict, temptation, despair, depression, and so much more, we could just give up. Or we could turn to a thousand idols as though they can deliver us. Idols of self, other people, money, stuff, anger, venting on social media or in person, numbing out to alcohol or some other substance or practice. Or we can turn to God and find that only God alone can provide everything that we need. Now there's a question in here that, uh, in my notes, that I didn't put in your notes. A question that doesn't appear in your bulletin. Whatever happened to David's enemies? We don't know. Because David is not concerned to share that information with us. What happened to David? Now that we know. 
He found rest, refuge, salvation, hope, and so much more in God alone, only God alone. So that in the midst of any kind of opposition, we also can find rest, refuge, salvation, hope, and so much more, but only in Him alone, not in anyone or anything else. That brings us back to one simple word of two syllables, three letters, OGA. In your frailest moments, perhaps this acronym can point you to the anchor that holds you through every storm, your only refuge. Better yet, you might memorize Psalm 62.1 or 62.5 and recite them to yourselves regularly, especially when you're going through hard times. Even better than that, memorize the whole psalm. Recite it to yourself. Rehearse it when you're going through opposition. Use it as a rubric for prayer. Let God lead you to specific prayers through the text. Or, you can join with others in singing these great truths. So perhaps you might, in a moment, stand and sing, Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? So come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy forever. A holy God, only God alone.